0: You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ.
1: Welcome to the BMJ podcast. This week, we'll hear from Tom Jefferson of the Cochrane Collaboration about the problem of publication bias and a tool which could help researchers douse for the data.
2: And so far, uh, the tolerance of publication bias, that includes me, has been very, very high.
1: Also, following on from last week's Wakefield revelation, Ryan Deere, the journalist behind the stories, talks to us about his work.
3: Well, I mean, I wasn't initially attempting to get any particular uh, story out of it. I mean, it merely began with an assignment to look into the MMR issue to coincide with a television programme that was being broadcast back in 2003.
1: But before all that, we've a slight departure from the usual news roundup. The BMJ has a variety of ways to disseminate its content online, in print, this podcast, some videos, but this week sees the launch of a new one. I'm joined by David Payne, BMJ.com's editor, who's here to tell us all about it. Hi, David. Hello Duncan. So, uh, what is this new way that people can access BMJ content?
0: Yes, well, actually this week we've launched the iPad version of the BMJ, which we're very proud about here. It's been uh, quite a few months in the making. Um, it finally went live last weekend. So, um, it's really, a, it's, a, it's a combination. I think it brings you the best of print and online. It's an app that you can download for free from the iTunes store. Um, and really, you know, we've bundled the content together. Um, so, you, you really sort of see the, you know, the selection of the journal content that you get in the print issue each week. Uh, and there are live feeds of news blogs podcasts videos so we think it's a it's a hybrid if you like of, um, of, of the best of the BMJ and uh, as I said we're very proud of it I think it looks lovely it's got nice clickable links to um, email addresses graphics uh, images you know related articles so it really I think capitalizes on the um the iPad's potential to you know to deliver content in a new way that means you can sort of do it all from you know from your from your from your screen
1: Sure. So why did the BMJ decide that uh, the iPad was the way
0: forward? Yeah, it's an interesting question, actually, because there are obviously a plethora of um, devices out there, and we're certainly looking at those as well. I think uh, it's fair to say that, um, you know, Fee Godley, the editor, uh, when the iPad first launched, she wrote an editorial, uh, or an editor's choice in, I think it was May last year, sort of singing the iPad's praises. She was certainly very taken with it, and I think uh, we decided that this was the one that we'd actually testbed. so um, it's very much a, you know, a first for us. We're the first general medical journal to have an iPad version. Um, it's been, we've learned an awful lot actually during the development of it in terms of how it looks how it's branded uh, what things to offer in it and uh, it will certainly inform how we go forward when we look at say launching a Kindle version of the BMJ or uh, other Android based devices the Sony e-reader. there are so many of them out there now and um, I think from now you know from from now we're going to have to look at which which other formats we use to offer the BMJ to our readers both at home and overseas sure the other reason that we sort of did the iPad version now Duncan was um, we did some market research last year of BMJ com visitors and um you know we discovered that lots of our overseas subscribers sort of you know were very happy with what they got but they, they did feel sometimes that they wanted a sense of what was in the print issue each week what the print issue looks like uh you know what articles we decided to sort of cluster together for the print issue and we we're very hopeful that the ipad will deliver that sort of sense to them and they will be able to see each week you know how we managed to group content together and um you know sort of our comments on it that's the, that sort of approach
1: sure and people who have a current print subscription uh, or website subscription, they won't be able to access the iPad stuff for, for free with that currently?
0: No, no, it, it is very much a separate product. Um, the, obviously, we have to sell the iPad app via iTunes, um, which is a, obviously a database in its own right, really. So the priority for launch was to get the thing live and to price it um, very competitively, which we, we're confident we have done. Um, but but getting the database, getting the iTunes database to talk to our subscription database was a bit of was was a, was not obviously in scope for the launch. The uh, the priority was to get it out and to make sure it looked good and that all the links worked and everything. So, um, so so that's that's the pricing as it is. It's a separate product. So uh, we hope people like it. Um, and uh, you know we would be great very grateful for any reviews and comments that people have about it.
1: Thanks, David. And if you want any more information about that, there's a page on bmj.com. That's bmj.com forward slash iPad. Or you can just go to the iTunes store, where a four-week subscription is £9.99, that's €13.99, or $16.99. In the December of 2009, the BMJ published a meta-analysis on the effectiveness of oseltamivir, that's Tamiflu, the drug that had been bought in mass quantities by governments, hoping to fend off the worst-case scenario of the swine flu pandemic. The authors of that meta-analysis from the Cochrane vaccine field included Tom Jefferson, who we'll be talking to in a moment. During their analysis, it became clear that key data on the effectiveness of the drug were unpublished, and in trying to obtain that data, the authors met various hurdles, all of which are detailed in a feature which ran alongside the meta-analysis. The problem of unpublished research isn't just an issue for Tamiflu, Rosaglitazone is an even more recent example of the dangers of hidden data, and it doesn't end there. In an article published this week on PMJ.com, Tom Jefferson and his co-authors quote work that says that fewer than 10% of Cochrane reviews actually take unpublished data into account. So 90% of what we consider gold standard meta-analysis are still subject to publication bias. So what can we do about it? In their article, Tom and his colleagues have set out questions, null hypotheses, that researchers carrying out a meta-analysis may like to ask themselves if they suspect publication bias may affect their research. Tom joins me on the phone now to talk about it. So Tom, what's the Cochrane Collaboration stance on unpublished data? How do you advise researchers with regard to that? Now... Does Cochrane have a, a stance on unpublished data? You know, what do you tell um, authors who are going off, uh, researchers who are going off and doing meta analysis about um, unpublished data?
2: Well, that uh, we're all conscious of publication bias, but it's a bit like Fiona Godley says with um, global warming. Uh, we're all conscious about it. We know it's bad. We know it's a bad thing. What are we going to do about it? Mm. And so far, uh, the tolerance of publication bias, that includes me, has been very, very high. But there are signs that this may change.
1: Sure. Now, uh, in the article that you've published on uh, bmj.com this week, you've got a table of null hypotheses to try and help researchers um, deal with with this issue. How did you develop that?
2: The table was developed uh, based on our own experience and based on the burgeoning literature on publication bias and general reporting bias, um, which is now appearing. We have numerous examples of um, reporting bias um, and the effects of that reporting bias. And so we just tried to elaborate a tool for the assessment of these biases whether they're present or not and what the possible effects are
1: sure and that full tables are available on bmj.com for anyone to go and have a look at now this has came from your your own experience and other research um, as you've just said have you had or has anyone had a chance to to try this and, and see how useful it's been yet
2: we are trying it now but I would certainly encourage other people um, other researchers this, uh, this problem uh, to do so um, there's um, very well-known uh, biases uh, like all types of reporting bias and there's uh, exotic biases like um, swamping bias
1: hmm. in
2: which um, regulators um, are deluged with uh, data there is so much of it that they may lose the plot and very often um, as the Avander case shows, and partly the Tamiflu case shows, the problems are in the detail. And when you have um, 330 volumes of submissions of uh, a particular uh, evidence set, uh, and there's four of you or five of you, and you've only got six months to do the review, you may just not see something. Very, very difficult problem. because it impinges on the business of uh, the publishing as well as regulation. Um, And uh, it is a problem for which we have to find a solution urgently.
1: We're starting to try and do that, things like the clinicaltrials.gov database in the states where we have to register uh, clinical trials going on if they're going to then seek regulation from the FDA. Um, But that's only been in case for the last three years, I suppose. And you're talking here about drugs that have been on the market for a while, perhaps. Do you have hope for the future that the clinicaltrials.gov um, database will actually make a difference to this?
2: Let me just state categorically that I think the clinicaltrials.gov and the prospective registration of trials are the first step. It is vital that we support this, that we increase it, we increase its relevance, and most of all, we make sure that what is in there is exhaustive Um, And it is kept up to date because that's one of the major problems that we identified uh, from the literature um, While we were preparing analysis and we're preparing our new protocol the second thing is that if we are um, to tackle this uh, reporting bias bull by its horns Systematic reviews and the Cochrane collaboration the work of the Cochrane collaboration becomes even more important Because we are able to apply synthesis methods to whole swathes of data, exhaustive data. We of course would be completely under-resourced we ourselves would be completely swamped but the Evandia case and the Tamiflu case I think show how important it is that uh, there should be an independent uh, scrutiny, there should be independent scrutiny of um, the evidence set the complete evidence set.
1: And as we said earlier, the set of hypotheses to help researchers think about publication bias is available on bmj.com. Now, earlier in the week, I was joined by Brian Deere to discuss his features and why it's taken so long from the original publication in The Lancet of that now infamous case series to the revelations just published in the BMJ. Now, Brian, you've set out the chronology of the stories uh, in your articles, uh, but what, ha- what perhaps didn't come across is exactly why it took so long to get from the initial publication of this paper to where we are now. Um, could you just sort of take us through a couple of the the big hurdles that you encountered when you were trying to tease apart this story?
3: Well, I mean, I wasn't initially attempting to get any particular. Uh, story out of it. I mean, it merely began with an assignment to look into the MMR issue to coincide with a television program that was being broadcast back in 2003, and initially we just tried for that, and then pieces of information surfaced, and so as time went on, it was a series of incremental advances. Um, but then Dr Wakefield chose to sue me uh, in late 2004 beginning of 2005 alleging that my stories in the sunday times and on channel four and on my own personal website were defamatory so we then got locked into two years of litigation with dr wakefield um and during those two years of litigation litigation which he and the medical protection society thought that they could stop they believed that they could initiate a lawsuit against us, and then have it suspended, put into, in, in, into the freezer, if you like, mm. stayed is the technical word, um, until the outcome of his GMC. So we got a court order against them, compelling them to sue us, uh, or to abandon their action. And then in um, uh, the beginning of 2007, uh, Dr. Wakefield then abandoned his litigation when we revealed how much money he'd received to... Uh, promote the MMR scare, and they agreed to pay our costs. Um, So so that gave us another two years. And in the course of that, uh, there was a lot of background research was done, and it became quite clear that the research which he'd done on the MMR vaccine could not be rationally explained. The difficulty we had was that the uh, material he was using for a clinical case series was obviously patient confidential information. Yes. So it was not until the General Medical Council used its powers under the Medical Act of 1983 to seize the medical records of the individual patients enrolled in the study and to present those records at a fitness-to-practice hearing. It was only when that happened that we could move this kind of information into the public domain. That whole period uh, dragged the thing out and then we waited on the transcript because... The important thing is, and one of the things I stressed very, very firmly to uh, Fiona Godley, the editor of the BMJ, and Jane Smith, uh, the deputy editor, was that it wasn't good enough just to believe what I say or rely on anything that I've put forward. I was really providing the roadmap of journalism. The important thing was to check whether what I was saying was accurate, Mm -hmm. and we couldn't ultimately do that until we had the transcript of the GMC fitness-to-practice hearing, and that wasn't available, I think, until about September of um, 2010. So that's why it took so long uh, to get through all this material.
1: So this investigation started in the, the Sunday Times. Why did these final revelations end up in the BMJ? Uh,
3: to go into the full story you need to give it space and you need to be talking to people with an assumed basic understanding of the concepts so if you're writing for bmj readers you don't have to explain to them what enterocolitis is for example Mm. and and also i think um uh, the bmj's editors uh, particularly the editor-in-chief fiona godley really was committed to doing it in an authoritative and accurate way. One of the things that's happened, i mean, I've done many, many stories uh, over the years in, in enormously complex areas, but it's always very difficult when you're dealing with people who are, like yourself, predominantly a journalist, to get them to focus on the, um, the technical detail and presenting that in a, in a comprehensible way. Yeah. So I think there were tremendous advantages um, in doing it this way, because I think if the, if the story which we had um, in the BMJ where we revealed the fraud, I think if that appeared in a newspaper, I think it would be much more difficult for other uh, media to be sure that the thing had been checked and wasn't you know, just a hyped-up um, piece of, um, piece of uh, journalism. But I think in the BMJ it has a completely different authority um, so that, I think, uh, made a huge difference too.
1: The BMJ has been criticised uh, in some quarters for publishing, you know, essentially what is a journalistic article written by a journalist as opposed to an academic uh, précis of what's gone on. So what would you say to the critics who've, who've said that?
3: Well, point one is, I am a journalist. There's no way around that. I'm not a doctor and I'm not a scientist. I'm a journalist. However, I had the information. It's me who's done the work and brought the information together. Now, there were two ways, really, that one could approach that. One way would be to, if you like, do a a conventional research paper or scientifically formatted paper uh, re-analyzing the original Wakefield 1998 Lancet paper on the uh, MMR vaccine and to an extent i've done that there's a, there's a web extra on the bmj website which tabulates the children in a more conventional format where you have two tables where each of the tables is footnoted and i think there's thousands and thousands of words of footnotes mm. which explain the tables and that is quite conventional so there was a way what we felt was there was a way of accomplishing the same amount of uh, accuracy and rigor that you would expect to find in a traditional paper but to tell the story uh, in narrative form.
1: And uh, finally, you know, we've had two of the three stories so far, and obviously the reaction to this, this latest one has been less than, than to the first one. But uh, has the take-up, has the, the fact that this has been such a big story through the whole history of MMR uh, surprised you at all?
3: Uh, I don't think so. Um, I expected the editorial to get massive coverage in the United States uh, because the the scare has moved there. The natural dynamic of of um, public health scares, if you like, is such that they come and they go. And I think it's been and gone in the UK, really. But it's, it's in a different phase in the United States. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't at all surprised by that, nor was I surprised that there would be less coverage of the second report because, once you've explained um, the first one, once you've run an editorial saying that uh, the research was fraudulent, it's very difficult to top that. Uh, it's very difficult to come back and sort of say, oh, and by the way, uh, here are the business schemes and the financial transactions and what have you that went on behind that. Um, so I'm not surprised by the way it's gone tall, really. Um, no.
1: Okay. Okay. Great. Well, uh, I hope that's given our listeners a bit of an idea behind what's gone on to to get this story published. Uh, Brian, thank you very much for joining us today. My pleasure. That's all for this week. Next week we'll hear about a new therapeutic series just about to launch, and the authors of its first article on novel anticoagulants join us to discuss the drugs. Join us then.